Hey, this is Bill Obers Jr. from Criminal Minds, and you're listening to Then Is Now podcast. Warning, warning. Today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at GetDeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the special episode of Then Is Now Podcast. I am your host, Rigor. Today, I am joined by the masterminds behind Pennsylvania's Drive-In Super Monsterama and the April Ghoul's Drive-In Monsterama, both held annually at the Riverside Drive-In in Vandegrift, Pennsylvania. George and Gene, welcome back, guys. Hey, thanks for having us. Awesome, awesome. So, we recently did a wrap-up show on September's Super Drive-In Monsterama, and now you guys are hard at work planning next April's event, right? Yeah, I mean, the discussions have been already started, and... Uh... We really, I mean, it's still way off before we could do any actual booking of movies, and but we're we're, we're looking into things and and talking about different ideas and and uh, yeah, it'll come sooner than than it'll 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 catch up to us, you know. For, by by before you know it'll be the holidays, the year will be over, then you know January, and then we're like fast approaching it. So yeah. Awesome, awesome. Okay, we are continuing our yearly event called the 13 Days of Hallowtober. Our theme this year is, quote-unquote, modern zombie films. And what that means is that we're not going to cover zombie films from before 1968, like White Zombie or I Walked with the Zombie, Teenage Zombies, and dozens of others that are voodoo-related. No, we are covering the ones that came after and were inspired by George Romero's Night of the Living Dead in 1968. Night of the Living Dead not only set up the rules for modern zombies, it had a lasting effect on horror filmmaking for over the last 50 years. Now, on today's show, we are breaking that mold with a film that came after Night of the Living Dead, but its roots are in the voodoo zombie legends. I'm talking about the black exploitation flick Sugar Hill from 1974. Class is in session. Blood is red. <laughs> Voodoo is blue. Sugar is sweet. Revenge is sweeter. I'm passing seconds. Meet Sugar Hill. No, please. Not a place, but a brand new face. My friends call me Sugar. The foxiest. Looking for anything special? Sexiest. Deadliest chick in town. The mob took Sugar's man away. And now, 
She's gonna make them pay. I want them dead. With a voodoo priestess called Mama Matrace. I know what you can do. The power you possess. How strong is your hate? And Baron Samdi, too. My particular special. A drink that I'm famous for. The zombie. This is my domain, a kingdom of the dead. And an army of undead behind her. Each death has had something to do with voodoo ritual. There's nothing that sugar can't do. Use it. The mob has never seen anything like Sugar Hill and her zombie hitmen. Well, one of George's favorite films, that's for sure. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, Sugar Hill is a 19, it was uh, shot in 1973, released in 74. And this was an American International uh, Pictures during the, the height of the black exploitation film. And uh, there were a few black exploitation horror films at that time. Of course, Blackula and, and Scream, Blackula Scream, and a few others. Uh, Abby, which came after Sugar Hill, actually. Right. And uh, Alabama's Ghost. There's, there's, a, there's a handful of them. But this is one of AIP's black exploitation horror films. And it was, uh, you know, produced by um well Sam Sherman was one of the producers uh you know the the, the surviving head of uh, AIP after Jim Nicholson left and he was by this is by by this time he was running the company by himself cuz Jim Nicholson had left and then passed away so this film yeah like you said it is it is uh has its roots in voodoo it's not it's not a zombie picture where they're 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 you know eating people it's basically it, it harkens back to the old old zombie films where where the dead were brought back to life to work and in this case to to kill off uh somebody's enemies and the the, the head character is uh is uh sugar hill and she gets her um her boyfriend, who, who runs a, a club based on Haiti, a Haiti uh, theme, is basically uh, the, the, these mobsters want to take over his club, and, and, and he doesn't want to sell it, so they end up killing him. So she gets revenge on these mobsters by by going to this uh, this voodoo priestess who's played by Zara Cully, who was in um, who is better known as yeah, as, as Jeff. Yeah, Mama Jefferson on the Jeffersons, and she's like by this point she's like like eighty years old or so, and it's a wonderful little performance. And she brings this character, this Baron character, who's also the same character. Baron Sunday, Baron yeah, Sunday. He, he's actually a pivotal figure in uh, in the black arts, the well, voodoo arts, and I think that she, the character is sort of based on around the same time they had done with the James Bond movie a similar theme. Yeah, and, the uh, Jeffrey Holder. Yep. Right. Exactly. Exactly. In uh, Live and Let Die, it's basically the same character. But this is a uh, yeah. It's it's it, you know, and this is he's played by Don Pedro Coley, a great uh, a great great character actor. Um, he's very who, good. Uh, yeah, who's uh, unfortunately passed away a few years ago. But he you know he had done some films with Fred Williamson. He's in um, Beneath the Planet of the Apes as one of the mutants. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. Yep. Great scene where him and uh, where where James Franciscus and Charlton Heston fight him in the cage, 
and uh, you know, but that's another story. But but he's he's wonderful, over right. the top, as this character, that uh, Sugar Hill, well, this attractive uh, you know woman played by Marky Marky uh, Bay, who's actually really good. I mean, she's she's a good actress. She did some dramatic roles. Oh, she's awesome in this. Yeah, she's great in this. But I've seen her in other dramatic From Philadelphia, roles. Philadelphia, actually, wasn't yeah. she? I, yeah, I I think so. She's a uh, Philadelphia. Yeah. She's in a movie called The Landlord with um, Bo Bridges uh, from from a few years earlier, early 70s. I've seen her in some other things. She's a really good actress. I don't know what happened to her. I mean, she's still with us. Very, yeah. very Pam Greer-esque. Yeah, she's tall, and she has great features, and, and but she never became as successful as Pam Greer. So this well, is let like, me give you the synopsis of the film here. The film centers around fashion photographer Deborah Sugar Hill, so-called because she looks as sweet as sugar tastes. And according uh, to the press, yes. She's the business partner of Langston, who runs Club Haiti, where voodoo ceremonies are part of the stage show and is located in an unnamed city that's implied to be New Orleans. The place is swinging with the reenactment of a voodoo ritual, complete with yeah. some fever dancing that entices the crowd. But when it's done, Langston is confronted by a group of mobsters who wish to purchase the club on behalf of their boss, Morgan. Morgan wants more than a piece of the action. He wants the whole club. When Langston rejects Morgan's offer to buy the club, Langston is beaten to death in the parking lot by his thugs. When Morgan attempts to bully Sugar into selling her Bose nightclub, she refuses. Her resistance is met with increased right. violence and threats. Sugar does what any reasonable woman in her situation would do. She goes to the voodoo priestess, who lives on a seemingly abandoned family plantation, now, Mama Metress. Yeah, so, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Sugar pleads with Mama to help her with retribution, and Mama calls forth Baron Samadhi, a very animated spirit resplendent in top hat and tails who grants Sugar her wish. Baron Samadhi controls a legion of zombies, and after a deal is made, he turns control of the undead army over to Sugar, which she uses to exact revenge on the gangsters. Meanwhile, local cop Lieutenant Valentine, a former boyfriend of Sugar, is assigned to the case. He is something of a skeptic about the supernatural occurrences in the film. Right. From there, the film basically goes into a series of vignettes where, one by one, Langston's murderers are fed swift and gruesome justice by Sugar, the Baron, and his army of cobwebbed, undead slaves, saving the best for last. So, uh, first off, when did you guys first see this movie, and what was your first impression? I, I saw it on... I, I don't remember this playing at all on... Um Playing it all on uh, Saturday afternoon TV here or any and anywhere actually. I went through a renaissance, film renaissance in the early 2000s with this just digestive crazy. I had to see everything, and it, and when I got to black exploitation, you know, I I went the the full gambit and did the black films and, and found copies of Blackenstein and um, the other movies and came across this film, and I think. I bought the DVD when it came out, or I rented it from a local video place. That's how I first saw the film. Actually, I think I had it. I may have had it on VHS. So my experience with this film and with Marky and stuff wasn't until the 2000s. That was my first my first interest in it. And it was because, chiefly, because of black exploitation. Like, the internet was young and trying to figure out how many films I was already aware of the Pam Greer films, but I wanted to sort of breach or connect it to the horror, you know, fandom and, and went through a whole black exploitation uh, horror thing. And that was one of the reasons why I found the movie. 
So I was aware of it, but never really saw it. You always saw the picture. I think, I think you always saw the picture of the zombies with the silver legs, um, plastic egg cases. That's what they look right, like. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll talk we'll talk more. I'm going to cover that. Yeah, but actually, my my first experience with it was uh, like he was saying. This is a film that eluded us because a lot of the AIP. Uh, like right. drive-in yeah. horror films from the 70s showed up on the CBS late movie. This wasn't one of them. And it didn't show, like, on my... Uh, I don't remember uh, seeing it as a kid at all. Yeah, well, in New York on Channel 5 used to show it late at night under the title Zombies of Sugar Hill. And it was it was cut, it oh, was yeah. cut to ribbons. I remember taping it on VHS, staying up late and, like, cutting out the commercial and everything. And it was almost incoherent. It was cut to... You know, then I'm... I'm now, mind you, this is a PG movie, but it was still right. enough in there. Right. It was still like a lot of racy dialogue and, and enough violence where they still had to pretty much butcher it on TV. Um, so that was my first experience. And it, it took a while for for an uncut copy to surface until, like, I think Orion, because uh, they had the AIP catalog, released it themselves on VHS. Right. And then, like Gene said, MGM released the DVD. And now uh, a, a Blu-ray came out a few years ago, and I highly recommend that because not only is there a great transfer, but there's, there's great extras. There's interviews with two of the actors who, like, say they're no longer with us, Don Pedro Coley and Charles Robinson, who's best known as uh, one of the um, cast members of the sitcom Night Court from the 80s and 90s. He, yep. he, uh, he just recently passed away, actually. But there's a great interview with those two actors, as well as um, Richard Lawson, who uh, had also done Scream Bocula Scream. He is still very much right. with us. And he plays uh, the good guy in the movie. Yeah. So he he does a great interview. And Paul Maslansky, who is the director, not only does a, a video interview, but he is the he does a commentary. Now, Paul Maslansky was a producer of horror films going back to the 60s, and he had an association with AIP because... He produced um, a time-made film called Castle of the Living Dead, which AI people uh, brought right to yep. television. Uh, then he did uh, The She-Beast, or a.k.a. Um, Revenge of the Blood Beast, with, um, which was Michael Reeves' uh, first feature. He produced that. And then he produced uh, the... Uh, Raw Meat. Death Line, yeah, Deathline Raw Meat. Uh, which was released by AIP yep. over here. So he had he had an association with AIP. Sugar Hill was the only movie he actually directed, and uh, right. and he does a great job. I mean, it's 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 a fast moving, it's a fun driving movie. It's got all all the all the meat and potatoes in there. And like you said, right, for a PG perfect. movie, it's pretty violent, and it's got you know it's got a lot of saucy dialogue. It's very you know it's not politically correct at all because well, first of all, Robert Quarry is Morgan, the the head gangster character. Now, according to Robert Quarry, now he was, uh, he played Count York, of course, and did the sequel, and he was under yes. contract at AIP, and this would have been the last film under his contract after he did Dr. Fives Rises Again and Madhouse. So it's right. like they didn't know what to do with him, and he, he says that this character was originally meant to be uh, a black, and so, yeah, but they threw him in there. So, and then, of course, he's, you know, like, even though he has you know, black henchmen working for him. He, he's racist, and his white henchmen are racist, so they're always, you know, like, very derogatory. So it's like, but that's typical of these black exploitation films. That was the era. You know, that's that's the way they are. But just having him in there is a treat. Because, yeah. you know, Robert, if you, 
you know, if you're a fan of the of this stuff, you love Robert Coy, and it's it's unusual casting, and he and he really gets into the role, and he's oh yeah, he's like suave, but he's a real prick at the same time, and he's doing like a southern accent, because like you said before, it's supposed to take place in uh, New Orleans, yeah. but I think I believe it's actually shot entirely in Texas. So yeah, it was shot in Houston. Yeah, very sleazy, very sleazy in the movie, and and the character that he plays, which is of course like George was saying, socially inappropriate, but it's very very much part of the whole black exploitation rise up against the man struggle that was kind of going on. It was not quite like today's woke films that are extremely politically correct in any way that they can be in, in pointing out social discrepancies or inadequacies. But these films were were geared towards that audience that was that was out to have a social statement made, but also enjoy the fun time that they were having. So poking fun of you know, the character is almost a caricature of a white racist, you know, and that's yeah, absolutely. very prevalent in those movies. We didn't take them. We we didn't live as, as bad as the civil rights movement was. Why should, I'm not saying I'm saying as bad things happened during the civil rights movement. It was a different world than it is today. And they were proving that social inadequacy was very prevalent. In fact, that was the main theme of Night of the Living Dead. We found out all those years later. But, you know, started to poke fun of these characters and they kind of like they were like boss hogs, like, you know, this white guy that thinks he's shit doesn't stink. And, he's, you know, they're they're saying that it was inappropriate, but they're laughing about it at the same time. And you don't see that in today's films. You don't see that that type of entertainment factor. So Robert Quarry played the character with a lot of with a lot of uh, tongue in cheek, sort of over the top humor. And that worked for the movie, and that worked well with Marky, you know, with the, the dynamic between right. the two of them, and the exchanges back and forth. And now George picked, this was one of the four films that George chose for the first April Ghouls. It was the Saturday night, and um, to this day, we are still getting people that are saying on the page, my favorite night of, of all April Ghouls was that Saturday night. And it was definitely mine. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely mine. Absolutely, and it worked. It's a film that just works so well on a driving screen. That one I remember being like just mesmerized by how entertaining it was from beginning to end. Yeah, you know? absolutely. That's sure. a film that was they they were just you know, obviously AIP black exploitation voodoo zombie. I mean, it was just catered for for the driver. Right, right. Everything, and, all the you know, were... right. But this movie, it doesn't matter. It, it you know, it was terrifying. You know, it's one of these films that's like, it's an exploitation film without the exploitation. There's really no nudity. No. There's no, like, uh, the violence that happens, you don't really see it. Right. But it's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> you know, nonetheless. And I think that works. That makes it great. She also know? made a deal with him at the end because in all, in all, this is through, you know, my familiarity with witchcraft and, and, and the, the arts. Um, you must give up things to get what you want. So the bargain that she had with Baron Thumdy was to give herself, okay, in order to get the revenge. And he took the the white trash girlfriend for, yeah. for, for <laughs> the end of the movie. So it was like, yes. she, you know, she's just running around. And she's, and she's played by Bet, uh, Betty Ann Reese, who was also right. in Robert Quarry in The Deathmaster. And she was also That's an right. unholy, yep. unholy roller. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. a very un, un, uh, un uh, celebrated actress, and she gives her yeah. at the end of the movie. Yeah. And social, social justice prevails. 
you and know? there is a cat fight between the, between the between, <laughs> between her and, and, and Mark yeah, and Sugar. A whole yeah, cat fight. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, it's because that was another. Uh, you know? Yeah, that was another element. And those zombies, and, uh, they were. Uh, they, they, you know, the makeup on them is really it's it's theatrical, but it's it's really creepy. And then the eyes yeah. are. I always said they, they look like ping pong eyes. That they were made out of ping pong yeah. balls, painted like painted silver, and sure enough, like Paul Maslansky, I think uh, in the commentary, he reveals that that's exactly what it was. Just oh, a yeah. unique idea, you know? Yeah. But, I mean, it yeah. just so, this makes it unique. It's it's like really odd to look at. It's just. Yeah, yeah. I remember the scene that sticks out for me is when the the guy thinks, and he's into it. It's like a pseudo sexual sort of thing and it turns out they're clawing him to death. Yeah, that's Charles Robinson, yep. And it's just a great thing because he's... That's fabulous, right? He's going for his massage. That's amazing. And he's not looking because his eyes closed and his, you know, he's he's on his stomach and they're working on his back and then, you know, sure enough, it's it's an undead that's, uh, you know, bringing nails into him. And and Marky Bay, who played Sugar Hill, she was Diana Sugar Hill, she was awesome. She was so cute. She could have been the next Pam Greer. Yeah, I was always... Know, but she wasn't. She was in this, and that was pretty much it. I was always asking a number of the, the celebrity reps that I work with, you know, why do we not have Marky... Why doesn't somebody have her as a client and have her at conventions? You know, because in right. particular, when they went and sourced all the character actors for... um. And they even got what's his name from Planet of the Apes. What was that actor's name? The black guy, very Don Pedro Colley. What was his name? Don Pedro Colley. No, I can't remember who it was. Um, yeah, he was Baron Somebody. He was well, no, in the guy beneath the Planet of the Apes. Almost in power cast reunion for Abby to appear at this convention. Oh yes, the Austin Stoker. Right. Austin Stoker. Stoker. Oh, Austin Stoker. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Right, you know, it's like I always wanted to meet that woman because I thought, you know. With with the rarity that we have now in the convention circuit, wouldn't be fantastic. But I guess people had reached out to her. Like I have some sort of memory here saying that she had been reached out to, and she was not interested in in pursuing that. Like pursuing the whole fan thing. Now you know, there's a lot of actors that just oh. they're they're done with stuff. You know, you know who's good at that kind of stuff is Bill from. Um, Groovy Doom, he's always getting these yeah. unusual character actors to appear on his show or in print, and he's always telling me, you know, I had to talk to them, and they don't do productions any longer, any type of, like, podcasts or anything, and they don't want to be remembered. One woman that he's interested in that was in, she was an actress from Horror High. She's apparently, like, a, a conservative governor's wife or something, and <laughs> She doesn't associate anymore with the horror stuff. She's not part of that culture. So, yeah, he's uh, talking about uh, Rose, Ro- Rosie uh, from uh, from Don't Look in the Basement. That's who he's talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's who okay. She is. Right. Yeah. yeah. Actually, Pat Cardi is coming up this weekend. Believe it or not, he, he yeah. Pat and talked to Patty. Yeah, Pat on the show this weekend. But yeah, there is some actors. You know, they just they don't want to associate with the fan thing. I I think that they they think it's too exploitive for them and they just want to be they want to be remembered for who they were and that's it you know so i think marky right right marky has had a successful run i forget what i read she's involved in something 
And she seems to be, you know, well-rounded and had a very good run, and she's not interested in coming back to that, which really sucks for fans because there's a million questions. You know, I know you would right. like to get a photo with her. I certainly would. Oh, but yeah. It's just not going to happen. You yeah, know? Yeah. That's too bad. Yeah, you can't. Because Marky Bay was so good. You know, Rubber Quarry was freaking awesome in this movie. Well, George knew Robert. He was so George evil. actually knew him. <laughs> George, you knew Rubber Quarry? Well, I mean, I, I met him a bunch of times. I wouldn't say I knew him, yeah, but I did, hello. you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, you met him numerous times. I certainly Tell did. us, dude. What's that? Tell us about it. He was a character. He was just, he definitely had a great sense of humor. He was great with the fans. And uh, I, I just met him at a couple, like probably the early uh, chiller cons and stuff. When it was like, just, right. uh, okay. when it was really just uh, not, not so much like this uh, big uh, expo. It was more like a personal convention where they had a right. handful of, you know, old time guests and, and, and uh, no, he was great. I, I had I have his autograph on a bunch of things. And now he had a car accident, right? And uh, it almost put the kibosh on his career. But then yeah, he made he a comeback a, in the eighties. Yeah, he right? did. He was in uh, well, more or less. He was in like a lot of B movies for like Fred Olin Ray. But still, he yeah, he was he, he was working again. You know. Oh yeah. But he had some he had some you know downfalls in his life, and uh, yeah, you know, definitely definitely won't be forgotten. Definitely one of my favorite. Uh, Actors in in these kind of movies for sure. Yeah, George you know? just kind of pulled that out of nowhere during conversation, <laughs> and he's like, "Oh yeah, you know, I met Robert Corey like dozens of times." And I'm like, "What the fuck are you talking about? Like, I I didn't even know he was he was at conventions." But, you know, yeah. George was in the New York area, so he had access to a lot. Well, of you know, well, still it was, uh, and there was a Fanex, there was a Fanex show. Back in the in the nineties, where he was there, and now uh, William Marshall was there, Blackula. Oh wow! So that was like you know, right. to me that was like you know, the second coming. Yeah, that was amazing. like unbelievable. That's yeah. amazing. That's yeah. Amazing. You know, and you look when you look back at that. When I, you know, I graduated college in the nineties and went right into the music industry, and uh, I still have fond memories of walking into the venues that I worked at and you know, people hanging out backstage like Deborah Harry and stuff and and you're just <laughs> you, like George you look back at it now and you go, Wow, that really did I really do that? Did that really happen? So <laughs> George has, has this he has this great history of having been in the New York area and meeting these people. Like I, I to me that's a dream to meet Robert Corey right. and William Marshall because of these films. So you you know George, you were in a really a really good place. It didn't maybe seem like it was all that big. Well, I had to, I still had to travel to meet him, but that's besides <laughs> the point. Still, that's incredible. Yeah. What about yeah. Betty Ann you Reese, know? who played uh, Celeste? You know, she was in, she was in Deathmaster, the Mod Squad, and the Hulk. I have no idea what happened to her. Yeah, she didn't. She did a few, only a few movies and some TV, but and then disappeared. Yeah, and uh, very good looking, good looking actress too. You know. Oh yeah. Yeah, very Richard sexy. Lawson. Yeah, Richard Lawson. Richard- he was the dude in Poltergeist. Yeah, Richard Lawson. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Richard Lawson did a lot. I mean, he did a lot. He was, I think, he was a regular on Cagney and Lacey. Yep. And uh, did a lot of film. Streets of Fire. He was married to uh, Pam Greer, actually. Really? At one time. I know that. Yep. Wow. That's I don't think crazy. they're still married. I think he, you know. I still haven't met Pam. I, I missed her. I missed her by 15 minutes of the convention, and I'm haunted uh, by that to this day. I've approached 
so many of the convention people that I know and have said, you know, she can't cost that much. Just make an offer. Find out who's <laughs> representing her and get her in, get her in, especially still City Con here in Pittsburgh. I used to always, I don't know the new owners of it, but the previous <laughs> owner, I used to always tell his staff, they would say to me, well, who do you think would sell? And I'm like, well, you make millions of dollars off of Anthony Daniels. Why don't you invite someone like Pam Greer? Because <laughs> she, has a his- she has a history, even if she costs a little more, more money. You know, you, you your A celebrities are paying for her to be there. So, you know, and I, I never got to beat her yet. I'm really, you know, one of these days, I hope before she passes, um, you know, she I get to meet her. So I missed her by 15 minutes. I was devastated. And you know whose fault it was? It was actually, it was, it was Norman Reedus's fault that I missed her probably because <laughs> I was talking, I, I was, I had gout and I was high on pain meds and I was babbling senselessly to Norman, not even realizing who he was. And, you know, that poor guy, what patience he had to put up with me. And, um, I, I I looked at my watch and or my phone and I said, Oh my god, I gotta go see Pam Greer and I left into the she was in a private suite and I went down the the, the uh hallway and, and she was gone. She flew back to Los Angeles early, it was on a Sunday. So by three o'clock she was already on her way out of the out of the <laughs> hotel. Oh. So I missed her. Oh, that's too bad. Not a good story. <laughs> yeah, one of these days. We'll see what happens. I met Kathy Hedren actually at that show as well, and <laughs> she was a kook. <laughs> so. Well, this is one of those black exploitation films, though, that it was really big back in the seventies. You know, in the aftermath of the initial wave that we had of the civil rights movement, you had all these amazing films, the black experience. Absolutely, and, absolutely. Oh yeah. And then the horror kind of turned its lens towards it. And they said, hey, we could make some cool movies, you know, with Blackula and Scream, Blackula, Scream. Then we had Sugar Hill, you know. It was amazing. Yeah. I think the Blackula, the original Blackula is probably the best of all of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He does a great job in that film. William Marshall is very, he's very complacent in playing any character that he's given to play. And he is so good and that role, it may seem to people that he's over the top, and there's always jokes about the 80s generation and Pee Wee Herman's Playhouse and Cartoon King, and yeah. and he was uh-huh. so well-known for that character. But William Marshall, he made his rounds on TV and in films, and he was, I remember hearing a documentary, or I think it was that black exploitation documentary that came out a few years ago, and they were talking about how, how difficult it was for that film to be shot, that you know, there was actually prejudice on the set. Some of the AIP associates were um, interested in the money that was going to be generated by the project, but not interested in the project or the actors. And, you know, he came in and did everything as he should. And, you know, and, and, and just he, with all, what I'm trying to say is with all the obstacles that was in his path, William Marshall played the character very top notch, you know, oh, yeah. he was committed to it. Yeah. He was very committed to the role, you know. He and he was the one that, yeah, he was. He was the he added the uh, like the, the the cultural background of the character too, right? You know, that was his Absolutely. that was his idea because you know they didn't have that originally, and he said this, you know, he's got to have some kind of uh, cultural background, and he, right. he right. added well rounded character. character. And, and yeah. the thing about this movie is Gordon too is it's like when I was watching it earlier, I mean, 
I had seen this about three years ago, and it's one of those movies like Ms. 45 that's been on my radar for years, you know, for decades, and I just never got a chance to see it. I finally got a chance to watch it, and, I mean, I loved it. The atmosphere. Like, when, when Sugar goes to Mama's house, it's this old... Uh, there's this whole sequence where it's soft focus, 70s... Right. Kind of looking... Lens. I just love that. Yeah. Yeah, that's the Vaseline, the Vaseline lens, and I think they shot some of the shots were also done with like a fisheye lens camera. Yep. So it was very surreal and dreamlike the whole experience of her. It wasn't just the experience of her going there as a viewer. You were brought into like uh, sort of an aesthetic of, of of what it felt like to be her at the location, and that it works on that level. It's a it's a beautiful film. It's, and that oh, was yeah. all shot on location. There was no studio involved. Right. That was all on location. Yeah. Well, yeah. it was shot in Houston, though. That's the thing. It, it was mm-hmm. supposed to be what? Uh, New Orleans? New Orleans, yeah. But... Yeah. But it was shot in Houston. And if you watch it, in the very end of the credits, it says, you know, thanks to the people of Texas and Houston. Right. You know? right. <laughs> but there's a great right. line where she goes, as strong as my love is, my hate is stronger. And I think that... Yeah, I remember that. ...really what sort of carries the film, you know? Yeah. Very much. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a good it's a good movie. It's definitely a it's definitely a film like George was saying that you you look back at it and it, it's a it's um it's staple for the time. It, it's a it's a um, slice of what life was like in the 1970s for for you know with racial with all the racial tension that was in the country and combined with horror. So it was the kind of movie that you know they could they could a lot of I think a lot of white audiences. The other thing with black exploitation was it was more accepted maybe because white audiences were watching horror films, you know, and, and again, the, the, the message is there, but it's delivered in such a manner that, you know, you, you can sort of make fun of it and not feel bad about making fun of it. You know what I mean? About Ralph's quarry right. character and, and stuff. So it, it's, it's, it's a thumbs up. It's a, it's, it's every February, I do black exploitation in my house, and um, that's one of the films that everybody watches. <laughs> I've had parties for years, and I always watched them. We always, I always made them sit through that. And then one year I showed Ganja and Hess. And oh, nice! If you've never seen that, that's a whole other story that we should oh, yeah. talk about someday. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and it was it was interesting because Kyra Schoen was here at the house, and she had never seen Ganja and Hess, and of course it stars. Um, you know, uh, what's his name from um, from Night of the Living Dead? Dwayne Jones. And, um, oh, right, and, and she was just, we were, I, I was like, you need to see this movie. It's an amazing film. And it's, it's. I think we might have watched, uh, you know, uh, the movie we're talking about that night as well. I don't know. I think we might have watched Sugar Hill that night, and she liked it too. But um, we were talking about, you know, her experiences with Dwayne and stuff, and, and, uh, that's an amazing movie. That's like a, that's even beyond art house quality. It, it's uh if he has to be known for something else in the horror realm, Ganja and Hess is, is decades beyond its, its time. You know, it's a great oh, yeah. film. Yeah. Um, you, you have to see it. If you haven't seen it, it's good stuff. But, 
Hi, this is Rigor, host of Then Is Now podcast and The East Meets the West. I just wanted to say thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. We appreciate your support as we grow the audience for our shows. You can find our links to our Patreon page as well as our Tee Public page at havenpodcasts.com. With Patreon, you'll get a lot of exclusive stuff, including our monthly pop culture newsletter, cool gifts, discounts for Tee Public, and our special exclusive show, Then Is Now Filmmakers series, in which we interview directors, producers, writers, composers, special effects guys, basically anybody who works behind the scenes in film and television, and get their insights into the process of creating films and TV shows. Also at our Tee Public page, you'll find cool merch that you can get or even give to others as gifts. You can find those links at our website, or you can go directly to tpublic.com slash stores slash havenpodcasts and patreon.com slash thenisnowpodcast. Enjoy! Are you a lifelong fan of General Hospital? Are you a new fan who wants to know more about the history of the show? Do you enjoy talking about the show with others? Do you find yourself yelling at the TV? Is your self-care an hour a day in Port Charles? If so, we invite you to join hosts Amanda Kimmel and Shannon Coach at the place where all the hidden conversations take place and secrets are revealed. Meet us at Pier 54, a General Hospital fan podcast. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit... We have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't. Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Shark Bites, Shark Bites Podcast. It's the greatest show in history. From the Dorkening Network. Hosted by a nerd who's named Patsy. From movie reviews to tips on surviving the coronavirus, Shark Bites has it all. Follow us on Facebook and suggest topics at sharkbitespod at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And... 
the thing about Dwayne Jones is, you know, we've been trying to, like, with this series that you guys are in right now, we've been trying to talk about movies that are post-Romero, meaning post-1968 Night of the Living, post right, right. Night of the Living right. Dead, with the rules that he set up. But this movie's not one of those movies. It's a voodoo movie, which, like I said at the beginning, we're not covering those films. However, this film does that, but unlike the Romero zombies, you know, the, the legions here from Baron Samity are of right. the Haitian variety. So they keep, right, right. you know, within the voodoo right. themes. More traditional. You know, right. yeah. The design is amazing. They're covered in cobwebs. They have these bulbous eyes. You know, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> you could still do this po- in a post-Romero world and have, and still have an amazing film, right? Yeah, I, oh, yeah. again, I think, I think some of it has to do with, with, you know, there was a coming of age. I'm 55. I think, I don't know how old you are. You know, George is I'm a little bit younger than me. But, you know, around that time, <laughs> that actor and actors like that actor, when you're talking about the Baron Sumdi character, we're talking about, you know, it was the voodoo thing was prevalent theme in the James Bond movie, Live and Let Die at the time. And right, right. They, were also, they were also doing 7-Up commercials. <laughs> Do you yeah. remember the seven up, the seven the up commercial? The coconut. Yeah, right. You know, and it's it just that Haitian culture, that connection with you know, not all black folk are from Africa. They're from Haiti and stuff. And there was a there was sort of a a, a surge in uh, American culture at the time that was making people very aware of these things that existed. That voodoo was real. You know, the, the tourism was was certainly still happening down in. People go down there all the time to New Orleans and that the whole voodoo history thing, you know, the whole culture because of, I mean, you know all about the voodoo, right? About the, 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 the actual religion. It's, it's, a, it's a combination of um, island religion and Catholicism, right. oddly enough, yep. believe it or not. Yeah. And, and that whole thing, it, you know, it's horror in itself. So, you know, there was always this sort of... Um, it goes back to the Hammer films, actually. It was used in Plague of the Zombies. It yep. was the same exact thing where yeah. they were, they were uh, you know, taking over people's minds. Zombies are not just the living dead that eats people. Zombies, in terms of the islands, were people that were supposedly, um, you know, appeared dead and were resurrected, like Serpent in the Rainbow many years yep. later, which was uh, a, a documentation about it. And you know who else did it in search of, I think? With Leonard Nimoy did a did several episodes that were based on that's right um, the whole voodoo the whole voodoo ritual and zombies and stuff. So it was a legitimate horror thing at the time in the 1970s. I remember it being everywhere. It was done on Scooby Doo, you know. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I can remember plots on Scooby Doo and also on Josie and the Pussycat. Right, right. right. It had that had to deal with zombies. And Colchuck and Ice Walker. That's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. Coming out on Blu-ray in a week, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing about Sugar Hill. You know, it was made for a PG audience, but, you know, there wasn't a lot of blood, even though there was a ton of amazing killings. Um, Sure. we didn't see it. But, you know, this movie was... They kind of went for the kiddie matinee, which... uh, I almost feel like it's too bad that they they went for that audience because you really could have you could have had something here you could have 
what what's his name? The guy that played Baron Somedy. It could have been a whole series of movies like Blackula. They could have done yeah. several of these films with this guy. Well, AIP you know? was having problems with the with the um, because the sequels weren't didn't make as much money as um, the originals. And as far as like the uh, the Blackula, Count Yorga, and Doctor Fives, the sequels were not making money, and that's why Coffee and and Coffee with Pam Greer, the right. Foxy Brown, which was the follow up was supposed to be a sequel to to Coffee and basically it is except she's doesn't have the same name right she's right Foxy I'm, I'm Brown. Foxy but Brown. Foxy it was Brown supposed to be like called it was going to be called like burn, something like Burn Coffee Burn and because this because the sequels weren't making as much money as the original right. they decided to really like cut off doing sequels at the time oh you know? okay so that could the be one, a, that, that could be why they'd want to do one offs more at that time. Interesting, interesting. Like like the scene where the zombies come out of the ground, which is a great scene in the movie, that's done in broad daylight. You know, you didn't yeah, see that yes, before. Yeah, yes, you're right. Well, it's broad daylight, but it's also like a, it's also very ethereal and very dreamlike because that's the same type, of, wasn't that the same type of lens and like fog and stuff and whatever. So it's like, sort of like, you know, the whole Tales of the Dark Side concept that horror exists in broad daylight, you know, in the shadows. Yeah. It's always there. And that was always a prevalent thing with, I remember one of my, my college professors used to say, evil is always found in, like, she always would quote the, the Sherlock Holmes films, and she would say, evil is never in the city. Evil is always in the country. And broad daylight out in the open is where, you know, Sherlock Holmes would find evil or whatever. Huh. And um, that's so true. And it's so true yeah. with, with that movie because it just shows you that once she committed to the voodoo and to Baron Samedi, there was this whole counterculture and other life that existed parallel with ours. And you're witnessing the, that happening. That's how the zombies were coming out of the ground and stuff, was that with a simple magical um, command, there they were, you know, and it could happen to anybody. And it's just the film, it works on every level. It's just, a, it's a, it's a it, you know what? And it's a pleasant surprise. When you talk about black exploitation and you talk about horror, it's really a pleasant surprise movie because it has all, it has all the elements of both rolled into one. And again, like I said before, it presents it in such a manner that it's tongue-in-cheek so that there isn't as much offensiveness. The message is not that offensive to some people that would, would have issues with it. You know, it, it reaches people, and, you know, you, it, it's, it's prevalent, and you get it, and it's a great film. So it's a thumbs up. Oh, I agree. I agree. You, you know, the zombies in this film, they're not eating the victims to death. They're no, doing, they just kill them. Like all kinds of inventive deaths. They're throwing guys into hungry, a pen of hungry pigs or pen of snakes or whatever. And it's like, but it's still scary. That's the thing. Like when you watch a horror movie, whether it's black exploitation or not, you want to be terrified. You want to be scared. And I watched this movie and, well, you know, and I, I get scared easily. I, got to tell you guys right well, now <laughs> well, i get you know, scared really easily about, the thing that makes horror really i was terrified the thing that makes horror really good is when horror films present themselves in a manner that something seems to be more commonplace every day and becomes and, and the terrifying aspects of it and that's kind of what you're you're tapping into because right it's the it's the it's the loss of your personal control 
or the character's personal control in the world around them, uh, it's seemingly normal world. And, and a lot of modern horror has really played on this. When you look at um, the Final Destination movies, which I can't stand, I loathe them. <laughs> um, they're always the same thing where you're taking, and this happens with all horror films now. It's really more prevalent now than it ever was before. Is you find yourself in that position and how quickly your your life changes, the characters changes, and exactly what the horror is that you are experiencing from this film is the lack of self control that these characters have in in the different scenarios that they're being murdered and stuff, you know, and that's what people relate to. People relate to that that fear of lack of self control. It's not even the pigs eating the people. I think that psychologically affects people. It's the fear of, of lack of self control. You know, oh, yeah. it's always yeah. in these films, it's you're pulled out of reality and put into a world that you're not you have no understanding or control. And that's prevalent with I just saw Malignant and it was ridiculous. It was like two hours Oh, it was awesome. Two hours of living. It was a it was a video game for two hours. Is what it was. And again, well, well, the it, first it, it, all right, the first two thirds was a slow burn, but the last third was like batshit crazy. <laughs> you know, it was batshit crazy, and I sat here laughing at the screen. Aww. I can't say I dis I can't say I disliked <laughs> the film, but what I would say to you is that. It just, it was so out of control that it was a sensory overload. I just like sat and laughed <laughs> yeah. at it. And I thought, what the hell are they, what is he going for here? Because it's like the <laughs> Matrix all of a sudden, you know, and, and other movies that are similar. And, um, you know, it was enjoyable. But again, it's that whole lack of self-control that, and these films that draws people to the whole experience. It's, they're sort of like bondage, aren't they? Where you get tied up and you don't know what's going to happen to you. <laughs> it's that Usually same type word. of thrill. That, right, it's the same type of thrill where you're surrendering control to horror or to, or to somebody else or something. And um, and that's very prevalent in, 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 in Shifter Hill. It really is. It's very prevalent. Well, because you know, and that's the thing. That's what I was going to say. I feel like the, the weak link in this film was... Um, uh, Richard Lawson's character, we played Lieutenant Valentine, and uh, he just he was the skeptic. But yeah, by the end of the film, he's kind of understanding. You know, he's developed an understanding, I should say, as to the right. supernatural nature of this, what's going on. But he doesn't quite put two and two together. He doesn't realize that right. Sugar's the one connected to the killings, and right. that always kind of bothered me that he should have figured it out. You know, I, I felt, I don't know, personally, I just felt like I wish as a character that he had figured that out. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get you. I know what you're saying. George, do you have a take on that? I really never thought about it, but I guess you're right. I love how she, um, har well, let's say harmlessly, like she's like, he's coming on, she's, he's, you know, coming on, she's, he's get, getting the hint of what's going on. She's coming on, like, he's knowing too much information, so... I'm going to make him fall down a, a flight of stairs to put him, break his leg and put right. him in the hospital. That's like her way of like, you know, it's basically like, oh, gee, she, she had his leg broken, so he'd be out of the way. So he'd be out of commission of his investigations. Yeah. You know, that, that's right. pretty, that's a pretty amusing, you know. I mean, it's done in a way where it's like, well, he, you know, he's, his leg is broken, he's in the hospital, but he's okay. Well, right, right. I have she to says... say, too, the Baron Zombie character, 
I, I mean, how, how do you put this in? And you got to, and again, this goes back to decades when the decade when this was made. This is not politically correct, but he, I, there's an amusing factor to his character where he becomes like, you know, what, what they used to call him Uncle Tom's, where he'd be a, right. you know, he'd be doing like a derogatory African American black, you know, uh, person when he was doing the, um, when he was right. setting up the murders of the white henchmen, you know, and he'd be dressing up as like uh, a cab driver or a construction worker, and he'd be like, you know, going yo, no, yo, sir, you know, yes, sir, yes, sir. you know, and basically, yeah, yeah. Right. you know, he's he's the way he's got the upper hand. You know what? That's what I like about it. It's like you know, I want to see these guys killed because they're they're you know they're assholes. Oh so, yeah. And it almost reminds me of like what Lionel Jefferson <laughs> did in, the, in in all the family to Archie Bunker when he would you know when he'd be like you know kind of patronizing Archie for his like ignorance of black, you know, black people, right, and black right. culture. Again, by, again, was, you know what I mean? And it's all, it's all, it's all crap. good. And you got to take it for when it was made, you know? Right. Right. Exactly. And you got to realize this guy has the upper hand. He's not the fool. He's the guy that's got the upper hand. Yeah. It was sensitive. It was sensitive area that was covered in, in such a manner that, you didn't have, and I don't, you know, I get kind of tired of the cancel culture thing, you know, but it's, it's a reality. It really is, exists. It does exist. And I'm a very PC person within reason, but I'm also not someone that forgets what life was like in the 1970s with the civil right. rights movement happening and stuff. I remember it very much. And again, this film deals with that aspect in such a manner that it makes it humorous. It makes it funny to watch you could watch it as a black or white audience member and get the joke without being an outraged black person or white person and say this is politically incorrect oh my god i can't take five minutes of this it is <laughs> it was done in such a it was done in such a manner that they knew that they were addressing the race issues but they made it entertaining and approachable to do so you know it wasn't like i just saw the new candy man it's just you know, my I watched it with a friend of mine and saw the original movie with me, and we were both sitting here, and I said, didn't the first movie make enough of a statement that I have to have, you know, these scenes of cops beating people to death? I mean, this is what reality is today, and the way that American audiences are approaching this whole issue today as as compared to, like George is saying, the, the black actors playing you know, the stereotypical black characters and white culture and making fun of them and getting away with it. It's like, you know, it is, it's what, how blackface is offensive today. Like back then you kind of got it, but if you did that today, you're done, you know, political right. careers and everything. ends. you can't joke about that stuff anymore. And, and with the way the mentality is today, you can't joke about it literally, you know, because right. it's a different world that we're living in. That back then, he could play these characters, and you got that. You got it. You instantly said to yourself, he's making fun of these characters. He has the upper hand. You know, Archie Bunker, for instance, as George said, Archie Bunker isn't the dumbass here. It's not Lionel Jefferson. And Lionel Jefferson's subservience to Archie and his replies and stuff are, are what we expect so that we can laugh at Archie and say, He's not with it. He's out of it, you know? But it's a different world today. It's just not the same. Well, that was the whole point. Archie Bunker was supposed to be how you're not supposed to behave, you know? Exactly. People well, took that you know to what? mean that 
that's how we should behave, and that's incorrect. That happened in it happened in mod. It happened in mod. It happened in everything that Norman Lear did at that, that time. Right. It's amazing. An actress that worked with Norman Lear that I know very well. I, you know, she's a prevalent actress. Two of them, in fact. I'm not if you tell me Adrian Babo, I'm going to like jump out of the oh, microphone yes, right here. Actually, Adrian. <laughs> and the other actress, I'm not going to. I don't want to mention her in a podcast, but I asked her about that. I said, "How in the hell did you get away with all this racial stuff?" with Norman Lear back in the 70s, and she said he, he had such control of, of his art, his work, and respect from the the networks that he could do that stuff, and people were lining up to be part of it, and it was just a different culture than it was. You know, and Adrian, she was so lucky. The first time I met Adrian, it's been 20-some years ago, and the first thing I asked her about, honest to God, was what was it like to work on the cast of Maude with Norman Lear? I wasn't concerned about the fog or any of this stuff because my earliest experience with Adrian was, was B. Arthur's daughter in that yeah, show. Yeah. And the stuff that was addressed on that, you know, and, and it, the swamp it, thing. she wouldn't have got some, well, you know, Adrian has a lot of amazing stories. If anybody ever meets her at a convention, ask her about, you know, her involvement with John Carpenter and their, their time in Pitt, their time in Pittsburgh and, one story that she tells about how, and Tom Atkins tells the same story, and it makes my head spin every time, is that there was a party, a dinner party here in Pittsburgh at George Romero's house with Stephen King and John Carpenter at the same table with oh Savini and her. I know exactly. And it's like, this really happened. <laughs> one time around the time of Cookso, all these people were we're friends with one another, and that's how Tom got involved in the fog, and Tom was involved in Creep Show and all this stuff. These people were all friends with one another, and it's just it's crazy to think that that actually it's and being a local here, that's it's amazing to me to think, oh my God, you're telling me that all these people that are like the icons of horror sat down in a city blocks away from where I live and had dinner. That's, <laughs> That's amazing to me. But then again, the cast of Night of the Living Dead always lived in my neighborhood too. So yeah. that's another thing. Yeah. You know, I knew where Carl I knew where Carl Hardman lived and and um from the autopsy of the dead video because I could see when this is so weird. And it's the truth. I knew the house was across the street from the window where they filmed the interviews for the documentary. I had driven past that house a dozen times. So <laughs> one day when I was out with Kyra, she said you want to see where my dad lives? And I said, I know exactly where your dad used to live <laughs> because I saw a documentary and I know where the house is. <laughs> I, you know, and it, it, it was a, you know, it wasn't like a fanboy moment, but it was like, I know this, this street and I know it's this town because I have driven past that house a dozen times and I even stopped and looked at it and it's the right house. And she said, yes, it is. And it was just amazing. It's a little, when you live local like that, the nuances are just crazy. You know, it's like, oh, oh yeah. You know, like people see Tom Atkins at, at the local grocery and store. The, you know, it's funny because that's the thing about this movie is it's, it's sort of a, it's a mix of the voodoo style. And then you got, you know, a little bit of the Romero shambling right. zombies, the rotting zombies from his undead movies. And, you know, you've got a little bit of the, the Valutin bug-eyed zombies from I Walked With a Zombie. So right. there's a lot mixed in here. And the thing I was thinking when I was watching this, now I watched this like three times over the last couple of days just to make sure I had it all in. And I right. felt like 
that scene where the zombies are coming out of the ground, if they had had the music from Lucio Fulci's movie Zombie, it would have been okay. amazing. I mean, this, the scene was great as it was, but it would have been amazing. You know what I mean? I do agree with you. I think you're. I think you're right. And I think, and that's a whole other subject. With and I think Tor can, can can also respond to this. You know, with the with the Italian horror films, the thing that's fascinating about those movies, especially the Lucio Fulci films, all the horror films in particular, is that you don't have the boundaries that you have with American productions with Italian and with Spanish productions. They just right. sort of have this go for it attitude. Yeah. And crazy shit happened. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, their imitation of American art, uh, horror, has been so interesting. Like, when they were done with zombies, they went to cannibalism. That was the next <laughs> thing that they did. And, you yeah. know, and, and cannibals are living zombies that are eating people. And it was like somebody in Italy said, you know what? Cannibals are scary. We're going to do a dozen cannibal films. And the films were instantly successful, but all that stemmed back to Dawn of the Dead. So yeah. when you're looking at these horror movies, like you're talking about with the voodoo and everything, and actually didn't one of the Fulci films take place in New Orleans or somewhere? Wasn't um, wasn't the house from um, the Beyond supposed the Beyond, to be New yeah. Orleans, George? Yeah, yeah, the Beyond, so yeah. Sort of did that. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, that was shot in Louisiana. Yeah. Right, exactly. So there's sort of the connection there as well. But yeah, I get you 100. percent I think that I think that's another reason why Sugar Hill was way ahead of the ahead of the ball game in terms of the other horror films at the time. Or you know, it's unique for sure. It stands out. There were there was no voodoo horror taking place in the 1970s. I I don't even think what's the movie George where they're on the boat? Is it called Voodoo Priest? There's a black exploitation. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, that's a, that's actually a Spanish uh, production, Black Voodoo right, exactly. Exorcist. Right. At least that's right. the American oh, yeah. title. Yeah. Yeah. But Alfred Thumb. That's about '73. Okay, around the same time. Yeah. And, and one of the films we just covered on the series it was um, The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue, and that's also '74, same year as this movie. It's it's very different. One of those ones that sort of you know it's between Night and Dawn of the Dead. You know, well, that 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 just, film is a, is is just uh, something onto itself. It's just that that film is oh, a yeah. masterpiece, and it, you know, we you know, we were able to show it and um, at Monsterama, and oh, nice! Like you know, I think I think I think it's been written up. I think Michael Weldon in the Psychotronic book first said it was like the best of the Night Living Dead ripoffs, and it it still is. I mean, it's just. Uh, Oh yeah. I don't mean yeah, that it was I mean it was a rip off in the sense that when she when she comes across that guy, that that is epic Night of the Living Dead cinematography. And you know, there once a month I swear to God the UK horror fans go to that valley where she was assaulted by the corpse and Yeah, the locations they, are still they, they visit those locations. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And they absolutely. I think a lot of the UK from what I've seen, the a lot of the UK horror fans and I don't blame them. They they kind of like want to claim that as like a UK horror film, even though it's Absolutely. it's really not. I mean, it was shot it's in an England. Italian Spanish film, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and even like the actors were all mostly, except for um, Edgar Kennedy, who was Irish American. But yeah, it was all Spanish and Italian actors. Right, right. Great love still, lock was yeah, half. That, so he, it's he very, was what? it's a very endearing film. It's very similar to Night of the Living Dead in the sense that. 
you know, Night of the Living Dead, we look at it as a horror film and, and, you know, we look at it as a culturally significant film now, believe it or not, big time. But, you know, it also sort of played into that whole hammer quatermass thing where weird science was causing things to happen. You know, the the ghouls that were coming back at Night of the Living Dead was radiation from outer space, possibly, uh, that was causing it. So it was more of a sci-fi thing. And it's the same thing when you look at Manchester Morgue because of the, the whole um, uh, radio signal that's causing them to come back to life. It's a yeah, very simple the agricultural structure, machine, know? yeah. And yeah. to answer George's question there, um, Ray Lovelock, the main character in um, Man- Living Dead at Manchester Morgue, he was a big star in Italy. He was half Italian and half British. Right. His father that's, was British. That's right, that's right. Yeah. He, he was, and then like he kind of like, you know, he had a, he definitely had a, a more English look. And if you if you ever like all the interviews I've seen with him later later on, um, he always spoke in Italian. Well, yeah, but yeah. I mean, I, I assume that he he knew English fluently, but he kind of I guess he kind of like yeah, they dubbed that him language in, that in favor of Italian. Yeah, because he was in like he said he was in a, in rock bands. And, oh yeah, you know, he was doing like Rolling Stone songs, so he's definitely got that English side to him. But uh, we it did a show like recently. He, yeah, it was he was in um Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man. It was one of those those Italian Poliziotechi movies. He's in quite a few you of had those, these yeah. Cops that were Yeah. They were authorized to use deadly force, you know? It was it was a great subgenre of cop films in Italy. But see, that you know, film it's a whole other topic. It's okay to claim it as a UK film, even though it wasn't it wasn't, you know, a, it was shot on location there. Right. Because it fits into what we George and I always call the Saturday afternoon British horror film, you know? like Psychomania, and, you know, you can sit yeah. here and, and name, like, ten movies that had that, and, and same way with um, Raw Meat and stuff. There was always this sort of mod 70s, hippie, um, you know, horror thing going on, like Scream and Scream Again was another example of it, like The Sorcerers. I mean, these are the films that we watched as a kid, you know, on Saturday afternoon, and you could still watching them. Films. I'm still right. watching them. Me too. Me too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Those are those are some of my favorite movies, actually. And Dracula seventy two A.D. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Or nineteen eight A.D. nineteen seventy two. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I never yeah, get AD, that right. Right. Sorry. <laughs> so let's wrap this up here, guys. Final thoughts on Sugar Hill, and would you recommend it, George? You go first. I definitely would recommend this movie, even if you're not a fan of the black exploitation. Cycle. Even if you're not too keep, too well informed about '70s uh, horror films and '70s zombie right. films, because it just it just it's very entertaining. It works on every level, and I highly recommend the Blu-ray that that's still in print that came out from uh, Scorpio and Kino. Not only for the for the great transfer, but the extras are fantastic on it. It's uh, it's well worth owning. It's one of my favorite. Uh, in fact, I'm probably gonna, you know, pull it out again to watch uh, for Halloween time. Oh yeah, yep. yeah, Gene. Yeah, and uh, you know, semi two things here. One, I kind of want to apologize for being all over the place, but no worries. Part of the the, the whole hor- part of the whole horror fan thing. Absolutely recommend this movie, and one of the reasons why I recommend it is because just the conversation we had tonight, where you can connect it to so many different things, and it, it's the same way that like people that were worried about the Jalio weekend that came out and, and raved about it. You know, 
experiment and go out and try new things. And if you're not familiar with with black exploitation film, and it's the first black exploitation horror film you're ever going to see, see it instead of the Blackula films because there is a little more going on here in this movie than there is with with the Blackula films. And I think I think this movie takes itself a little more seriously, culturally wise and horror wise than. It's much more enriched than ripping off the whole Dracula legend and making it black. So I say, yeah, if I had to suggest one black exploitation horror film, it would absolutely be this movie over the other ones. Oh yeah, not Blackenstein. <laughs> no, it's a terrible movie. That's a ter- that's a terrible film. Or, or Doctor Jekyll, <laughs> Mister Black, or whatever its name was. That's awful. Oh my god, it's terrible. <laughs> I have to say, I haven't seen either of those movies i'm dying to i just can't seem to get my hands on them but you know i totally agree i i feel like you know um this movie's it's an exploitation film without the exploitation there's not a lot of sex in it you know there's no nudity there's violence but you don't see anything and i it's still scary i'm telling you i watched this like two or three times over the last couple days and i was terrified every time i watched it (laughs) It's, well, it's you know, great. you know, it doesn't have, it doesn't go too overboard because, you know, we this was still a time where, even though there were some R-rated, a few, quite a few R-rated films in the early seventies right. up to the mid seventies, they were still catering them to the to the kids, and they were for yeah. the most part rated PG. Right. So even right. stuff like Willard and Ben and all that, those are rated yeah. PG. The Hammer films that came out in the early seventies, which definitely. You know, some of them had to be cut to get an R rating, but for the most part, they were brought over here and they were like, they were just cut to ribbons and to get a PG rating. I think all but, the early 70s films, except Twins of Evil and Vampire's Circus, uh, were, were like cut. I'm talking about the non Warner Brothers productions. Right. But they were, you know, like they, like AIP picked up Sister Hyde and Dr. Echo and Sister Hyde and Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. And they cut them to get a PG because they were marketed to to the kids. So you know, like, I even, even I, I, not, I think uh, Toby Toby Hooper said he was even trying to get a PG rating for Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and that film yeah, yeah. that film's minimal as far as gore. I mean, there's nothing that graphic in that. There's nothing nope. sexual in that. Uh, it's well, terrifying. It's, it's brilliantly terrifying, but it's just a little. It's all the atmosphere. It definitely, you know, it definitely deserves an R rating just for the shock value and it's and just some, the yeah. Material that's, that's exactly. Not yeah. You know, and you bring up a great point because just like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, this is one of those movies that when you walk away from it, you walk away thinking that you saw more than you actually did. Yeah, sure. definitely. Definitely. Well, it's, a safe, it's a safe movie. I think it's highly enjoyable. I don't think it matters that it's not that exploitive. I recommend this. I think people should check it out, see it. It's not. It's a voodoo zombie movie. It's not a Romero zombie movie. No, not at all. It has no. elements of it, but... Um, I gotta it's say, in black magic. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And don't forget the Steve song "Supernatural Voodoo Woman" by Motown recording right. artist The Originals, which was not a hit. The Originals, yeah. yes, yes. Which I couldn't find that on Spotify. It's not on there. Yeah, that just goes to show you it's probably pretty obscure. You know, I never tried to seek it out, but it's a catchy well, we tune. I I like it. We didn't, we just, yeah, yeah. We didn't we didn't see that movie until like. You know, it's it's just not accessible like the other black exploitation films. It was, and 
You know, I, one thing I want to say real quick is when you look at it again versus Blackula and, and the other films, you know, anything in my book that is more pure is usually better. It's yeah. a hidden gem, and that's exactly why I suggest Sugar Hill is better than those other films because it is exactly that. It's a hidden gem. You know, it's something that is of decent quality that just isn't over um, advertised and talked about. So it's definitely the film to see. Absolutely, absolutely. I agree with you guys. You know, thanks for joining me today, George and Gene. Can you guys once again just tell us how to find your um, your page on Facebook? No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's just, yeah. just put in Drive-In Super Monsterama and you yeah. will see our yeah. community page and that will keep you informed about all the future event, events, which will be, the next one will be uh, April Ghouls in 2022, and then followed by the September um, Driving Super Monster Rama. Twice a year, that's it. So there are no summer yeah. shows. Awesome. Thank you guys for joining oh. me again today. It was a great episode. Thank you. My pleasure. Yep, definitely. We'll see ya. Okay, folks, thanks for joining us today for our special 2021 13 Days of Hallowtober series where we focus on modern zombie films. You can send your feedback to thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group. Then Is Now podcast is a proud member of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so please be sure to check out the other great shows there at thedorkening.com. You can also visit our website at havenpodcasts.com where you'll find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and Spaghetti Western movies. And while you're there, please click on the Patreon and Public links to get some exclusive stuff, especially a show that you cannot get anywhere else. And Then Is Now is on YouTube, so please visit youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 to get the latest videos as well as other fun videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube page and also share the video versions of our podcast with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. Don't forget to go wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review so that more listeners can find us. You can find us on all the podcasting apps, especially the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Class dismissed. Now podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media. For more shows like the one you just heard, check out the Dorkening Podcast Network at thedorkening.com.